Hey, welcome to Optimize Your Body with Martin Silva, where we talk raw, uncut facts to truly help you optimize your body. Hey guys and girls. So, good episode coming up on Optimize Your Body. I have a guest here, goes by the name of James Swanick, and he runs his own blue light blocker company, Swanick Sleep. How are you doing out there, James? I'm doing so well, thank you, Martin. Great to be here. Thanks, mate. Thanks. That was a bit of a rubbish introduction, actually. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit more to you than just a swanic sleep. So um, if you'd like to, yeah, just just introduce yourself to the audience and tell us what you're all about, mate. Well, I guess you could say I'm a healthpreneur. I'm from Australia, but I live in Venice Beach, California. And what I do is I build businesses around health. I have a sleep company which helps people sleep better. Uh, the main product is our blue light blocking glasses, which I'm wearing on my face right now, uh, which I really created because I wanted to sleep better. And then I also help people quit drinking because uh, I gave up drinking in 2010 uh, just for lifestyle reasons. I was not an alcoholic, but I just, you know, you don't need to be an alcoholic to quit alcohol. Uh, and I quit and, you know, my life just exploded in terms of success in, in all areas. Um, and I, I liked it so much, I just kept on going. And now I've helped tens of thousands of people quit drinking uh, around the world. So, you know, I guess you could say I'm a quit drinking expert and a sleep expert. Wow. So you you quit drinking and there was no, was there any particular driver behind that, James? Well, I grew up in the Australian culture where it's just normal that you have, you know, a drink or two each night, you have a few more on the weekends. It's a very social thing to do. And so that society told me that that was just normal. And then I got to my mid-30s around 2010, and I realized that I'd put on about 20, 25 pounds. I started to look a little bit weathered. I was tired, lethargic, and it kind of just caught up with me. Um, and it wasn't that I was rock bottom. It was mm. just that I was average. I just felt kind of like blah. Mm. And my sleep was compromised. You know, I wasn't really achieving the success I knew I was capable of. I was just kind of like living life at a six out of 10. And so I just decided to experiment, take 30 days off alcohol just to see what would happen. And in 30 days, I lost 13 pounds. My skin improved. I slept better, had more clarity, focus, energy. I had an opportunity to audition to become a sports center anchor on ESPN, which is the most iconic sports TV show um, probably in the world. And I ended up auditioning and getting that job, and I became a sports center anchor on ESPN for, for, for two years. And I credit me not drinking and having clarity and strategy and focus and energy to helping me get that job. So. You know, about four years ago, people kept asking me, is it true you don't drink? How do you have fun without drinking? And I said, oh, maybe I'll just create a program that helps people quit drinking. So I did. I created a program named 30 Day No Alcohol Challenge. And then I later created another program specifically to help entrepreneurs and business owners named Project 90. And, um, you know, now that's one of my main businesses. Great. So you talk about alcohol and obviously, yeah, you, you have achieved a lot of success since cutting that out. So obviously that plays a huge part in you getting to where you are now. And can you just give the listeners a little bit more information on the science behind, you know, what alcohol does to your body, you know, the detriments and yeah, any, anything you've kind of got for us, please, mate. Well, alcohol actually comes from an Arabic term, um, al-kuhul 
And alcohol means body-eating spirit. The World Health Organization says that there is not one piece of nutritional value to any amount of alcohol. So when you drink alcohol, it's, it's a toxin, and those toxins stay in your body for 7 to 10 days. And what the toxins do is they slow you down, they make you foggy, they compromise your sleep, they give you sugar cravings, they give you carbohydrates cravings, so you end up eating more. Um, uh, studies have shown that if you drink, you have uh, far more visible signs of wrinkles and um, um, crow's feet on your skin because your skin is the body's largest organ. And when you, because alcohol is a, a diuretic, it actually um, dehydrates you and dehydrates your skin, which means your skin does not look the way that nature intended it to look, which is why people who are tired or who are drinking just look tired in their face. The moment you stop putting that toxin or uh, poison into your body, your face returns to the way nature always intended your face to appear, which is healthy and vibrant and with color. So... Um, you know, people always say, oh, but what about the studies that show that if you just have a glass of wine each night, it's really good for cardiovascular health? Well, that study, or that claim rather, has been peddled for decades by liquor companies um, trying to trying to force down our throat that just a glass of wine every day is good for you. Well, the people who are pushing that are the people who are creating the wine, mm. who are wanting to sell your, your their product on you. And like I said, that's now been debunked over you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies that show that there's not one amount of alcohol that it has any nutritional benefit to you. Um, people say, oh, but it reduces your stress and anxiety. No, it doesn't. It keeps you stressed and anxious. Because when you drink, when you're stressed and anxious, you, 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 you think that it's relieving your stress and anxiety, but all it is doing is relieving you of your, with, of your alcohol withdrawal symptoms. And it keeps you in a vicious cycle of more stress and more anxiety. So, um, you know, it increases your, uh, decreases men's testosterone, increases cortisol, increases your likelihood of diabetes and cancer, liver disease. There's nothing good that can come from it. Absolutely, yeah. I can totally relate to that as well in terms of I really drink nowadays, but when I do, especially if it's, you know, more than one or two, it's just you just feel poisoned the next day, you know. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to say as well, in terms of the people talk about the polyphenols and whatnot in, in red wine and, you know, the studies done on Mediterraneans, but obviously there's so many other things that they're doing to have the, uh, the healthier lifestyle, like what they're eating and the relationships and whatnot. So, yeah, just to clarify, there's absolutely no benefit to – because I always – I lie to myself occasionally when I have like a red wine – since coming to Australia, I've, I've, I used to hate red wine, but I actually like the taste of it now occasionally as well. And mm. I'm just like, you know, justifying it in my head occasionally having a glass too. But just to clarify, obviously there's much more toxins in it than there is anything else, right? Yeah. I mean, toxins, um, mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. It likelihood, increased likelihood of disease. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, look – if if you drink, if you if you have a, a a glass of wine a night and you don't feel like it's slowing you down, and it's and you genuinely don't feel like it's holding you back, then keep drinking a glass of wine every night, right? That's fine. But if you realize deep down you kind of know, right? You know, deep down you know if 
any habit that you have, whether it's drinking or playing video games or porn or overworking or disconnecting to your loved ones or or obsessions over so deep down you know if if thing if something's holding you back and i would say that most people in the world would probably deep down know that drinking is holding them back in some area so then you just got to look at it as an opportunity cost it's like am i willing to keep drinking this poison am i willing to lose out on all the opportunities that i could have if i stopped and mm. if the answer is yes then just keep drinking yeah and the answer is no then 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 quit already and mm. stop your whinging and your whining and, and, oh, but yeah, sure. Oh, oh but it's so hard because all my friends drink and, oh, but my client, oh, but my boss wants me to drink. Like, yeah. just stop. Mm. I'm, it's boring. And I'm, I'm sure you're bored with yourself with all of the nonsensical excuses that you give yourself around this. And it doesn't have to be alcohol. It can be anything. It can be eating crap food, ice cream, burgers, fries. It can be just not doing what you said you're going to do. It can be like cutting corners with your word and being out of integrity here or there. If you're sick of it and you're sick of playing at a 6 out of 10, then make a change because mm. life is beautiful on the other end. Mm. Yes, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. We're, we're very, very good as humans at lying to ourselves, right? So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a very good point. And did you face any challenges? Because obviously with, with alcohol – you know, it, it can be socially cleansing, right, to a certain extent. Now, I know you said, obviously, and I'm not trying to stand up for alcohol here. I'm banging against it. It makes me feel like crap. And, uh, you know, clients I coach and stuff like that, it's always going to pull people back for sure. Uh, I just wanted to say that one more thing. Obviously, sometimes it can it can relax you to have one or two for certain people. Um, and it can I guess it can be socially cleansing if you can do it in moderation. But um, did you face, uh, I wanted to say, obviously, on that point that, it's going to be more do more harm than good, but um, you know for some people it can be I guess if they can do it in moderation. However, what, what I wanted to say is, um, did you face any challenges? Because as I say, a lot of people find it it can relax and have one or two. But I know what you're saying. I totally agree. In the long term, it's a vicious circle of stress and anxiety. So it's going to make you more stressed and anxious long term. But did you face any challenges when you quit alcohol, James? In terms of like the social side of it and stuff and whatever else. Oh. Well, first of all, it doesn't relieve stress and anxiety. It's a temporary, illusionary reduction in stress and anxiety. It's illusionary. Mm. It's illusionary. You think that it relieves you of stress and anxiety, but it doesn't. Ah, okay. So anyone who says, oh, but it relieves me of stress and anxiety, it does not. Hear me now. It does not. It is tricking you. It is keeping you stressed and anxious. The only reason that you want to have a drink at the end of the day is because you're stressed and anxious. And then you have the drink and you mistake the temporary illusionary relief of your stress and anxiety for meaning, oh, alcohol relieves me of stress and anxiety. It doesn't. It just keeps you stressed and anxious the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. To answer your questions in terms of um, did I find challenges, well, I mean, I had social challenges in that my friends, all of a sudden I, sh I rocked up and I'm like not drinking and they're like, go on, just have one. So that was, that was, that felt troublesome at the beginning before I just became so confident with it that it didn't bother me anymore. In fact, I was so self-conscious about it that on the, the first romantic date I went on after I quit drinking, I actually tricked my date into believing that I was drinking vodka soda. In actual fact, I was only drinking soda. I, I, I teed it up with the with the waiter beforehand. Like I said, you know, when I order a, a vodka soda, only make it soda. 
And so I lied to her because I was so self-conscious that she was going to judge me for not drinking. Um, I, I, I stopped that pretty, pretty quickly. Um, so that, so there, there's pressure from society, from friends, from family, from colleagues, from your boss to have drinks. And, and I call them smiling assassins. They're always smiling like, Oh, let's have a drink here. Let's catch up for a drink. Hey, can I get you a drink? And the fear is that when you say no, or no, thank you, that they're going to go, what? And they're going to suggest that you're depriving yourself of something fun. And if your energy around that is, oh, yeah, I can't drink, I shouldn't drink, I've, I've got to quit, then you're going to convince yourself you're depriving yourself of something fun. So what, what I do in my coaching with 30 Day No Alcohol Challenge and Project 90 is I help people deal with those social situations. And the way with which you let people know that you're alcohol-free is far more important than the actual words that you say. So if you say, oh, yeah, I'm alcohol-free at the moment. It feels feeling pretty good, actually, but, yeah, I'll just grab a water. Yeah, I'd love a drink, thanks. Can you grab me a soda water? Yeah, no, I'm just not drinking at the moment. It feels pretty good. Yeah, I'm going to get drunk on this soda water tonight. Watch me dance. I'm going to go crazy. So if you're very light and positive and playful about it, nobody can pressure you. Nobody cares. And people just get you can just get on with it and have a have a fun time. Hmm. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I think that's a trick a lot of people use, right? Uh, people who don't drink is like kind of pretend they're drinking. But yeah, it's a good point if you just have fun with it, right? And because people, it, it is a lot with peer pressure. People do get pressure pressurized a lot with it, right? But um, I was just going to say, how many? Because alcohol kills something like what three million people a year or something like that. So. Is that, is that right? It's something along those lines, isn't it? It's pretty crazy, the stats. I don't know the exact stats. Um, yeah. I can tell you that um, it, it's it's more dangerous than the opioid crisis that they're talking about, like, like mm. the opioid crisis in America. It is nothing compared to the crisis of alcohol. It's just because society accepts alcohol and it's more of a slow burn, like over many years, people don't tend to think that it's like, such a, such a, a, a bad thing as it actually is. I mean, it is dreadful. Mm. It causes relationship breakdowns, divorces, violence. And, I, and I, again, I'm not talking about, like, if you're listening, you don't have to be an alcoholic in order to, to, to hear me now. Like, you just seem to be, even if you're just a casual drinker, an occasional drinker, one seemingly innocent glass of wine a night is enough to compromise your sleep, which makes you irritable, which makes you less productive, which means you don't get a promotion at work, which means you don't start that business, which means you don't make as money in your business, which means you eat sugary foods, which means you put on weight, which makes you more tired and more lethargic, which makes you seek refuge from your stress and anxiety in a drink, which starts the vicious cycle all over again. So, you know, opioid crisis in America is is a crisis, but nothing compared to alcohol. No. And it's kind of like the root cause to a lot of other problems, but right? it leads on to other other things as well, like, you know, violence and whatnot. But yeah, I've had people, uh, certain people close to me have really affected badly by alcohol and I've, I've seen it ruin people's lives. So, but yeah, just in terms of when you quit, James, because a lot of, you are right though, a lot of people do talk, people I can see, lots of people I've come across, clients and whatnot, really genuinely want to quit, but they seem to talk about it and never really take action, right? So yeah, I, I can agree with what you're saying. Like, stop kind of making excuses and just and just make it happen. At least cut down or whatever. I was going to say, did you turn to any other vices, James, at all? Because I know a lot of people I've come across or I've seen it happen patterns. People quit alcohol 
and then they'll turn to food or, or something they'll you know put on weight or turn to something else. Did you have that issue at all, James? Well, initially I had sugar cravings, and a lot of people talk about sugar cravings. And uh, it makes sense because when you're drinking alcohol, it actually turns into sugar. And then if you stop drinking alcohol suddenly, then you're not giving your body all of that sugar that you that it's been used to. And so you remove the alcohol and then you have these cravings for sugar. Now, it's temporary. It only lasts a week or so. And then you, then your body reverts back to back to normal. So, yeah, I certainly found initially that I uh, – I, I, I was seeking ice creams or packets of crisps and, you know, things like that, um, which kind of felt like I was defeating the purpose of quitting drinking because I was just – all I was doing was substituting one, you know, like like one bad vice for, for, for another. Um, the other thing is probably for about six months I thought that diet sodas were a good alternative. So I was drinking Diet Coke and, and a whole lot of stuff. And then I read up and found out that actually that's not good for you either. Yeah. It's uh, – uh, and then I reverted to, you know, just water, ice, and a piece of lime, which is just a deliciously refreshing drink. Um, so, um, but yeah, for the most part, when I gave up alcohol, what happened was is that it opened up a cascade of other healthy habits. So I started getting into meditation. I joined the gym. I ran a half marathon. I ran a marathon. Um, I, I discovered paleo eating lifestyle. And, you know, I just started to 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 look at other healthy habits in my life. Great. Yeah, so I guess that kind of covers everything for the listeners. That was great in terms of alcohol. Great insight there for the listeners. Let's move on to sleep, James, because, you know, you're, you're becoming an expert in that field now. So I always talk to the listeners. I've actually done podcasts on it because I'm aware myself on how important sleep is, and uh, it's one of the most important things. Obviously, you know, I think they done studies and, and, and we wouldn't last longer than, it was, they said three weeks, but I think it's less than that, much less than that in terms of no sleep, right? It, actually, I'll ask you that whilst you're here, James. How long would we last generally with no sleep, do you think? How long do you last with no yeah, sleep? Yeah, like until before you die and shut down and turn into ah, a lunatic. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something like a, a week, but I'm just going to Google it. I don't actually know. It's a great question. How long can you go without sleep before you die? Let's have a look. Uh, the longest recorded time without sleep is 264 Eight. hours or just over 11 consecutive days. Ah, uh, That's right. It just came back to me now. Actually, I heard it on a Joe Rogan podcast. I think he went 11 days or whatever. Mate, this guy was seeing, like, hallucinating. He thought people were after him. Mate, honestly, the story I heard about it just come back to me now. But, um, yeah, so obviously, James, sleep is a, is a big rock. It's, it's fundamental. How important is sleep? Uh, and, yeah, if you could just give us more of a, a heads up, James. Well, sleep is when your body restores itself and repairs itself. Um, it, rep- it restores the glucose in your brain. Uh, it re- your muscles recover. Your hormones uh, take a break and, re- and, and recover. I mean, it's everything. You can't live a, a good life or a healthy life if you're not sleeping sleeping well. Um, this whole idea of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead and I'm going to hustle, I'm going to push and grind, it's just a complete waste of time. Um, it's, it's doing you more harm than it is good. So um, seven to eight hours sleep is generally regarded to be the best sleep. Everyone is different. President Trump only sleeps four hours. Uh, Jeff Bezos, the Amazon CEO, I think he sleeps nine or 10 hours. Richard Branson, I think only sleeps five hours. So it, it can differ, 
Um, and just because you're only sleeping four hours doesn't mean that you're going to be unhealthy because everyone is different. But generally speaking, seven, eight hours is considered to be the optimal time. But more important than that is the quality of your sleep, um, uh, ensuring that you're um, you know, blocking as much blue light at night as possible because blue light at night disrupts your melatonin production and causes sleep problems. Sleeping in a cool environment, 65 to 69 degrees Fahrenheit, is generally regarded to be the best temperature for optimal sleep. Sleeping in a dark room, uh, making sure that you get natural sunlight in the first thing in the morning um, because that tells your body's internal clock called your circadian rhythm that it's time to wake up. And then that will help your body 16 hours later start to produce melatonin and prepare for sleep. Um, so, so, yeah, I think um, – you know, seven, eight hours focusing on sleep quality um, is is generally regarded to be, you know, the, the best way for optimal sleep. Wow. And in terms of sleep quality then, James, I heard you recently on the 180 Nutrition podcast, actually, and you were talking about candlelight. And that's something I've started really doing since I heard you say it. I wasn't being as, re- uh, as rigid as I should have been in terms of preparing myself for a good quality sleep. So talk to us a bit more about that, James. And the blue light blockers or whatever. Well, for centuries, we used to live by candlelight, by fire flame, right? Before Thomas Edison mass-produced the light bulb at the end of the 1800s, we lived our life at night by fire and flame and candlelight. And fire and flame and candlelight does not disrupt our melatonin production. However, when we started using electronic light, and then later on in 2007, when Steve Jobs released the um, the iPhone, and we had this artificial blue light, you know, we're carrying it in our pockets with us everywhere. And now we have computer screens that we stare into every day, and television screens, and iPads, and all this kind of stuff. Now we're actually being exposed to artificial light uh, at nighttime, which our bodies were never uh, designed to to handle. Um, so. The best way to sleep, uh, to get the best night's sleep, is to live your life by candlelight and never, ever subject yourself to artificial light at night again. It's literally make a fire in your backyard, cook your food around the fire, or it's light up some candles in your home and live your life by candlelight. Now, realistically, it's 2019. Nobody's going to do that. Very few people in the world are going to do that. But the people who do have amazing sleep. So, so then it's all about how can we, what can we do, what can we do to limit that blue light exposure because there's too much blue light at night. Um, so, you know, a few, few things we can do is um, on your iPhone, you can use the night shift setting. And if you go into your settings, go into brightness and put in night shift, at nighttime, it will um, start to, to, to strip away the blue light exposure from your phone and your screen will start to go orange in color. If you have a computer, you can download the app Flux, F period L-U-X, uh, and that will also reduce the blue light exposure. But neither of those two features um, block the blue light from your TV screen, computer screen, bathroom light, kitchen light, bedroom light, alarm clock light, refrigerator light, microwave light, bedside reading light. All of that light at night is tricking your body and brain into thinking it's daytime. So your melatonin isn't producing as much as it should, which means you your sleep quality is compromised. 
So what I've done is I've created a stylish pair of blue light blocking glasses. I'm wearing them on my face now. They're called Swannies from my sleep company, Swanwick. You put on this orange lens. The orange lens blocks out the blue light. The blue light cannot penetrate. You can continue watching TV, continue using your, your cell phone, continue reading, brush your teeth in the bathroom light. And then only once you've switched off the last light do you remove them and then roll over and go to sleep. And what you'll find is that you'll fall asleep quicker, you'll sleep deeper, and you'll wake up feeling more noticeably refreshed. Awesome. I'm looking forward to trying them out, actually, James. I currently have a pair, and I look like a, a welder. It's not a good look. You know, the uh, the basic, you know, kind of, <laughs> you look stupid yeah. in them, basically. They, they look really trendy, though. So I guess they're the, obviously, you have two different types, right? So they're the daytime ones i guess obviously well there's two types there's there's one with a um, orange lens and then there's one with a, a clear lens now the orange lens must be used for nighttime use because only an orange lens can block enough of blue light that's responsible for your sleep mm. okay um, <clears throat> a clear lens does block blue light but not en- not enough blue light that um, uh, disrupts your sleep so you can wear daytime clear lens during the daytime to filter out that blue light as you're working on a computer. And what that does during the daytime is reduce eye strain, reduce headaches, gives you more clarity and focus. Then at nighttime, you would switch out to an orange lens nighttime pair, and that would block the blue light responsible for messing with your sleep. So daytime clear lens, nighttime orange lens. Awesome. So it seems like the most important things is obviously darkness, as you just went into detail about then. You said about sleeping in a cool room or making sure you're you're not too hot and your temperature is kind of regulated. I've also heard, James, regularity uh, in terms of getting up at roughly the same time each day, which you kind of alluded to with the the daylight and whatnot. Is that something you're quite regimented with? Because I kind of struggle with that. I get up a little bit. I start work at 5 a.m., see, with clients. On the weekends, I'm not going to get up at four. Is it true that that's important? Yeah, it's actually probably the most important in terms of if you can get onto a regular waking up schedule, that's going to be better than if you're going to bed at the same time but waking up at different hours. It's something to do with, your, your again, your internal body clock, your circadian rhythm. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we live in a world where there's lots of different time zones and we're moving around more than what we ever did, so it's not always possible. For example, I'm in Australia at the moment, and I just came back a week ago, and despite my best efforts, I was still a little bit jet-lagged. And so for a few nights, a few mornings there, I was waking up at like 4 or 4, 4.30 in the morning. Ordinarily, I like to uh, get up um, 10 minutes either side of 6.30. So somewhere between 6.20, 6.40, around that kind of area, that's when I generally wake up um, most mornings, and I always time it to be that way. Um, that was That's what works um, uh, best for me. Great, yeah, because... Just the listeners, James lives in Venice Beach, right, in L.A.? The runs by that right. area? Yeah, and obviously it's a drastic time difference right now. It's just like 18 hours in front here. Drastic. It's, it's not that much, but it's, I think it's like 14 or 15 hours, yeah, something like that. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh, it might be more. It might be more. You're probably right. I See, I'm obviously jet-lagged, and I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's all good. Um, yeah, so anything else we need to cover on sleep, James, before I move on to the next thing? Well, I just say what you do in the first 15 minutes when you wake up in the morning is, is, is as important as what you do in the last 15 minutes. So expose yourself to as much of the sun, natural sunlight in the morning as possible 
and then block as much of the light at night time as possible. Great. And let's just talk a bit more about your regime, James, in terms of how you look after yourself. Now, exercise. How, what do you do to stay in shape, James? Well, I exercise most days of the week. Um, you know, probably do str- what I would call high-intensity uh, cardio or, and some weightlifting. I do that like five days a week. On the sixth day, I might, um, you know, go for just a gentle jog. And then on the seventh day, I'll do nothing except just walk, walk around. Um, and so I like to stay consistent with that. Um, I like to exercise in the mornings um, because I find if I put it off to the afternoon, I, I come up with excuses as to why I shouldn't do it or don't want to do it. So I tend to do it first thing in the morning. And all the studies show that people who exercise in the morning tend to be uh, tend to sleep better. They think it's because of two reasons. One, because people who exercise in the morning tend to do it more regularly, um, and so they're generally healthier anyway. And also. Um, if you exercise close to bedtime, it raises your core body temperature and all the studies show that a cool body temperature is optimal for a great night's sleep. Um, so yeah, I'll do, I mean, I change my workouts up a a lot. If I go to the gym, um, you know, I'm lifting, you know, heavy and lower, lower reps. Um, I'm doing that for kind of like muscle growth, but then I'll do, you know, I'll go to a, a circuit training class like F45, for example, and and do high intensity cardio, which is much lighter weights, but higher repetition. And I'll do that to feel fit, you know, to like get my heart rate going and to sweat profusely. Mm. Um, and to really, you know, give me a full body, full body workout where not where muscle growth is not so much the goal, but it's, it's kind of like just, you know, getting my cardio up and my heart pumping. Mm. So I like to do a combination of that high intensity cardio and then also weightlifting. Great. One thing I forgot to ask you in regards to alcohol, I just wanted to ask you something about your 30-day alcohol-free challenge. What kind of results do you get with people long-term? Because with certain things, like obviously with food and stuff like that, it's obviously changing behaviors, fundamental behaviors take time. So obviously with my clients and whatnot, when it comes to them improving their relationship with food, it's a very slow incremental uh, process. With alcohol, how, how do you find it in terms of people uh, with long-term success when they've done that? Or, or what results do you get essentially out of that 30-day challenge? People? Yeah, so uh, it breaks up into two different types of people, right? The people who return to drinking after 30 days do so uh, at a far reduced rate than before when they were drinking. So they, they, ret- they return to drinking but with moderation. And then uh, just as many people just to say, decide to keep going and see how long they can go. And many people just quit and stay quit and never return. So it just depends. Um, the whole idea of the 30-day no alcohol challenge is for you to explore your relationship with alcohol. Determine what works for you, what does not work for you. And if you do the 30-day no alcohol challenge, you get a glimpse of what it feels like to live alcohol-free with clarity and focus and energy. Then at the end of 30 days, you can... You can go back if you choose. Most people go back um, at a far reduced rate, or you can continue to stay alcohol free and just enjoy all the benefits that come from come from that. But I have people who've been alcohol free for four or five years now. Have messaged me all the time saying, "Hey James, I'm at, I'm at five years. I'm at four years. My whole life's transformed. It's amazing." I got people who say my marriage was was saved because of 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 going alcohol free. Um, so it's you know it's really a personal choice. 
Um, I will say this, Alcoholics Anonymous has less than a 10% success rate. Rehabilitation centers have less than a 10% success rate. Brute willpower has a less than a 5% success rate. Um, my Project 90 program, which specifically helps business owners, entrepreneurs, executives, professionals quit drinking for at least 90 days and beyond, has an 87% success rate so far. So, um, yeah. Well, well. And alcohol anonymous and those kind of things, alcoholics anonymous, sorry. So the reason they don't get as good success rates, the success rate, I guess, is because they're not addressing the root cause and there's no kind of real structure around it, I guess, in comparison to what you do. Well, when you do it, when you go to AA, look, look, AA's intentions are very noble and they've helped millions of people over decades. They, they just have, right? So it's not that I'm knocking it. Mm. However, when you go to AA, you have to surrender to some higher power. You have to admit that you are powerless over alcohol. I'm not admitting that I'm powerless over anything, mm. right? So, so what it does is that it keeps you in this identity of like you're powerless, you're a victim, like you're fighting this adversary, this adversary, like and and you're surrendering to the higher power, whether it's God or whatever. I'm not down with that. I don't jibe with that at all. And my identity is I am a powerful, open man who can make anything happen. I'm not surrendering, saying that I'm like that I'm an addict or that I or that um, you know that I'm powerless. No, I'm powerful. So that's what I don't like. I don't like about AA. Now, does it work for some people? Yeah, but guess what? It doesn't work for nine out of ten people. It does not work for nine out of ten people, and it's dark, depressing, and sad. Now, someone who's listening to this may have gone to AA and had success. Amazing! I'm so happy for you. But don't come at me saying you shouldn't be knocking AA because you have a ten percent success rate. Ten percent. That's not good. Would you would you put a hundred thousand? Would you bet a thousand dollars on a horse, a ten horse horse race, and had a one out of ten chance? No. Likewise, rehab clinics cost about one hundred and twelve thousand dollars for a thirty day stay, and they have less than a ten percent success rate. Mm-hmm. So, if you just look at it at mathematical and playing the odds, I mean, AA is 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 a losing bet. Rehab is a losing bet. And so what I do is I create a powerful fun method, a powerful fun system whereby there's accountability, appropriate accountability. It's fun. You are powerful, not powerless. And all of the science and all the studies show that when you put someone in a group of positive, powerful people, that's when real change happens, not in a powerless group of people talking about how their life sucks the whole time. But you know what? Some people will be listening to this and they'll still get angry at me and they'll come at me and say, oh, you shouldn't be knocking AA. All right. Well, look, one in 10 people succeed. Okay, great. But maybe try something where you have almost nine in 10 people succeed. And that's that's what I had. Mm. Fantastic. And obviously, you're a completely different person, I guess, based on what you were saying then in terms of you becoming a different person, it sounds like. So obviously, you're, you, you've been alcohol-free for like nine years now. Have I got that right? Buddy. That's right. That's yeah, right. So yeah. obviously you're, you're fundamentally a completely different person. So I guess that's the big part of it. If you're still attaching yourself to that identity of being a drinker, as you said, you have to use, I guess, words and, and what you tell yourself and all these kind of things and self-belief play a big part as well then, James, yeah? 
Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I your body actually changes every two years. There's not one atom in your body that was the same two years ago. So we're constantly changing. The skin around your hand is the, is different skin than what it was 30 days ago. We're always changing. We're all always evolving. So I'm a different person from nine years ago. Just physically, the atoms in my body are different. And, and so what you do today will affect who you are in 30 days from now and who you are in two years from now. So today, you can choose to drink poison and toxins, and then 30 days from now, you'll, your skin will be a certain way, or you can choose to drink water, soda water, lime, eat healthy foods, and your skin will be a completely different way. So what you put in is what you're going to get out, right? So yeah, I mean, I'm fundamentally a different person physiologically on an, on a, on an atomic level, but I'm also just different on an energetic level and you know, the way I see the world and, 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 and the lens through which I see everything. Brilliant. You are, obviously, you talk about gratitude, which is something that I have started implementing over the last year or so, and it's definitely changed the way I think. I have a much more positive outlook on life now. And appreciation over expectation is something you mentioned, which is something I think I heard Tony Robbins talking about a while back, and I kind of just alarmed by what, uh, sorry, kind of like something went off in my head. And I thought, wow, that's so true, how we are constantly expecting things to happen uh, and things to turn out well for us. But we don't spend a lot of time, generally, most people anyway, we don't spend a, long, uh, a lot of time appreciating what, what we have. So, um, yeah, could you talk to us a little bit more about your, I know you have a certain rituals in the morning and stuff. Well, I mean, I, I just... I don't, I don't touch my phone until I've written 20 things I'm grateful for every day. I have this thing called the daily 20 where I write down 20 things I'm grateful for each morning. And what that does is it activates my reticular activating system, otherwise known as your RAS, which then constantly seeks evidence that life is good and there's, lot, there's, there's lots to be grateful for. And I find that doing that first thing in the morning just puts me in a great mood um, it makes me my stress and anxiety uh, reduce, and I can go about my day living in a life of living a life of appreciation rather than expectation. Um, when we expect things and we're like wanting things and we're striving for things, that's when that's when misery happens. That's when agony happens. But when we appreciate what we have, that's when we live in a beautiful state of mind. And when we live in a beautiful state of mind, we're operating on a higher energetic vibrational level, which means opportunities come in. Um, health comes in, business and money flows in, connection, relationships. So there's only really two states of mind to live in, a beautiful state of mind or a suffering state of mind. And so doing those 20 things that I'm grateful for every morning puts me in a beautiful state of mind and energetically, you know, just beautiful things happen to me in life. Could you give us an example? So I know some of the listeners, probably people who don't do or don't practice gratitude, they probably think, you know, thinking of 20 things might be quite tough for them. Can you give us an example of like five things that you would appreciate in the mornings? Could be, I know it could be anything, just just to tell the listeners that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that I'm now in Australia and I get to see my uh, my family. Uh, I appreciate uh, appreciated the dinner, the meal I had with my friend uh, last night that I got to catch up with. Uh, I'm grateful for the fact that people care about what I have to say enough to put me on a podcast like this. Uh, I'm grateful for the fact that I kicked the football with my 
um, nephew uh, yesterday. I'm grateful that I'm flying to Austin, Texas in a couple of weeks to go and speak at a uh, health conference. Uh, I'm grateful that uh, I get to even be able to get on a plane and fly between Australia and Texas uh, and, and, you know, be, be there within a day. Whereas, you know, you know, decades ago flight, you know, flying wasn't possible. It would take six months to go get on a, on a boat, for example. Um, so forth and so forth and so forth. I'm grateful for the food. I'm grateful for the workout I did. I'm grateful for sleeping in this bed. I'm grateful for the flowers. I'm grateful for the sound of the birds in the morning. Like, and this it goes on and on and on. Mm. So, mm. and that's it. Just for the just for the audience, it's it's the little things, right? It's the things. It's and it's all based on what you're saying. It's all, it's all perception. It's what we perceive uh, to be to be, I, I guess, happiness really. And as you said, then you mentioned like the birds tweeting and just the simple things in life. When you start, I guess. Spend it taking more time out, even if it's only a few minutes in the morning, just to appreciate the little things. And you know, another one just for the audience, like I, it doesn't have to be twenty things either, right? Like I, I started off with three things, and I think I worked my way up to like five to ten, and and that does the trick for me. And um, it's something that helps me whenever I get stressed as well. I find taking some deep breaths and and just appreciating what I have rather than complaining about uh, sweating the small stuff essentially. But um, yeah, mental health, I wanted to talk to you about real quick as well, James. And, you know, we're facing, we're facing an epidemic right now of, of mental health illness. Do you have, I know, I know you're not, you know, I'm not saying you're a psychiatrist or anything like that, but do you have any tips for the audience to help them, you know, or anyone they know, because so many people are suffering with depression and anxiety and whatnot nowadays. Do you have any tips or tricks for anyone? Well, I mean, look, uh, doing that daily 20, I think, in the morning is, is what we were just talking about is key because it starts your day thinking about what there is to be thankful for. Mm. That's, like, that's just key, right? Um, and also getting out of your, your own head and helping others will get you out of misery as well. So I, I actually suffered six weeks of sadness last year. I had a bit of a midlife crisis couple things happened and I went down a spiral of sadness for about six weeks. And what got me out of it was I committed to, to doing 11 different charities in 11 weeks because all the science pointed to the fact that if I stopped focusing on myself and started focusing on others, then my stress and anxiety would, would fade away. And that's exactly what happened. I started helping others who were less fortunate than me. And, and it wasn't like I became happy overnight, but I just definitely became less sad overnight. Mm. And then simple things like getting sunlight, exercising, drinking, you know, water, um, eating good food, being in a sense of community. The, the longest running human study re recorded is a Harvard University study that's been going 85 years now. And it says that the, the num number one contributing factor to uh, someone's happiness or overall contentment is being is feeling like they're part of a community. So getting into an organization, joining a club, having like-minded friends, feeling like you're part of something bigger in a community, um, you know, can really have a huge effect on your overall well-being and get you out of pain and misery and suffering. And on that note, uh, human connection then, right? So relationships, as you said, community, very important to get out there and meet people and actually have that human interaction is something that I'm, I'm very aware of uh, in terms of how it makes me feel when I'm sat in front of a computer most of the day and not having those human interactions and whatnot. 
social media is is not obviously the same thing, right? So that's um, something which I wanted to quickly ask you about. Obviously, um, there's some studies to show that that's that's playing a part now in in, in the mental health kind of uh, issues people are having. Spending too much time on social media and, and amongst other things, um, you know, it can be an addiction. Your iPhone in itself, and as you mentioned, you could be addicted to gaming and stuff like that as well. But uh, yeah, just just what I was saying then is social media. Obviously, you, it's great because it connects us. Um, we're more connected than ever on on a digital level. But what's your thoughts on social media and and, and comparing that to human connection, James? Well, look, if social media is important for, for, for my business and that it helps me get the word out and I can communicate with people. But if, if used the wrong way, it is a complete and utter rabbit hole of sadness and depression because what it does is that it, uh, it, it has you comparing yourself to other people and it gets you to being a surveyor of other people's lives and then it gets you stuck in comparison analysis. And it's easy to look at people's, you know, fluttering photos and images and go, wow, that person's life is so amazing, and then think that your life is so crap. So uh, I would say if you can limit it, limit it to one, you know, to a block of time every day and then get off it or even just delete it um, if it's not important for your business because – um, you know, it's great for the sharing of ideas and, and but it's also you can go down a rabbit hole of being very – getting very sad comparing yourself to others. So – uh, it's it's something to be aware of, and I think you'd be shocked if you if you did a, you know, an internal audit and see to see how much time you actually spent on Facebook and Instagram and things. You, you might be shocked at, you know, how much time you're spending and and how ineffective it really is for your happiness. Mm. Great, great. I uh, I actually had like I think I had 36 hours of social media this week for the first time in a while, and I felt great. I I, I wasn't I was I, I still get distracted myself. So obviously, I use it for business to a certain extent as well, and I'll sometimes go on there and get distracted. And I calculate the amount of time I was wasting. Uh, the other day, basically on Monday, I was on there. I was doing some stuff on my computer. Then I got sucked in a, a couple of times, and I realized I wasted about half hour to 45 minutes. That meant that I had to do those things that I was going to do then in the evening. That then bled into me having a, a rubbish sleep, and I just woke up in the morning. I thought, that's it. And you know what? I felt great. So what I'm going to do, James, is I'm going to try – once a week or once every other week just to have like at least a day off it mm. so yeah what's your thoughts on doing like the occasional fast off social media then mate yeah do it yeah do it test it you test know it yeah. you, i mean you're going to do a 30 day no alcohol challenge to test mm. how that feels why don't you do a you know 30 hour no social media challenge mm. great mate um i thought that covered everything um yeah, that literally just, you went into detail about um, all the important things there. That was great. Is there anything else you wanted to, to say as a, a final say, if you like, mate? I mean, I just think focus on good quality sleep and your life will transform. Focus on reducing or quitting alcohol and your life will transform. Focus on reducing time on social media, comparing yourself with others and your life will transform. And then focus on appreciation rather than expectation and your life will transform. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for your time, James. That was awesome. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate.